Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Today on Healthy Bite, I am talking to author Judy Foreman. Judy has written several books, all published by Oxford University Press. Um, they are A Nation in Pain, which was published in 2014, The Global Pain Crisis, which was published in 2017, and Exercise is Medicine. And I will let Judy tell you a little bit more about herself. What made you start writing this book, A Nation in Pain? Several years ago, maybe five or six years ago now, I ended up with really severe pain in my neck. And there was no car accident or injury or anything obvious that happened, except being hunched over a computer all day. Maybe that was part of the problem. And I uh, finally, you know, like many, many, many people with pain, I went from doctor to doctor and, you know, one, and she was a woman doctor, just really didn't seem to believe me. Um, it's a very common experience for people with pain to not be believed, especially women. Finally, I did get a diagnosis and an MRI, and I had what they call spondylolisthesis, spondylolisthesis, it's hard to say, uh, where your vertebrae sort of slide forward over each other. They didn't actually like compress my spinal cord, but they kind of impinged on the nerves. And uh, it was very painful. And I also ended up with cervical dystonia. The, the muscle spasming in my trapezius muscle were so severe that my head got tipped to the left. And I would take, I'd have to be, get it straight using both hands. It was, it was really a nightmare. And I, at the time, I was still writing my column for the Boston Globe. So I was writing about pain. Um, and I realized in addition to being horrible, pain was really interesting um, from a biological point of view. When it's not yours, it's really interesting. Right. Um, and so I started researching this book and um, it turned out to be uh, very gratifying, but also kind of there were things I discovered that were really horrifying. Um, one of which does have to do with gender, which is that women do get more pain than men. Chronic, chronic pain we're talking about, not acute pain. And um, they also get it more severely than men. And this is partly genetic. This happens in animals as well. And one of the most horrifying things I found out was that despite the fact that women have a much higher prevalence of pain than men, most of the very basic scientific research is still done in male rats not female rats. Despite the government saying you got to study both sexes, um, it's just like a rigidity of the science and the funding that keeps them from studying uh, female rats, which is nuts. It's just completely nuts. It is. That's completely crazy. It, I mean, obviously there are differences. That's and right. so it only makes sense to study both. It makes right. no sense whatsoever. Is there anyone standing up saying why they don't study female rats? Well, not officially, but you know, when you talk to scientists, some of them say, well, we've always done it this way. You know, our funding comes in this way. We don't, females are too complicated. They get their periods. And I go, well, hey, um, that's, that's not a reason not to study it. Exactly. But in terms of pain, mm -hmm. women's pain is not as believable. You know, it's, it's, and it's, it's too bad. And one, one of the reasons for that is when they do brain scans of people in pain, you know, there's different sections of your brain 
and they light up in a characteristic way when people are in pain. So if we could afford it, we could diagnose everyone in pain by looking at brain scans. That would be a very extravagantly expensive way to do it. But the limbic system in the brain, which is sort of the emotional processing center, lights up more with women who have pain than men. And that means that women feel it in a more emotional way and present it in a more emotional way when they talk about their pain. And that turns doctors off. Wow. You know, so it's women are kind of in a bind because their brains are reacting to this pain uh, with more intense emotions. Mm -hmm. And when they convey that, they kind of get, you know, doctors often get turned off by that. Oh, right. An emotional woman, God forbid. (laughs) Um, So we hear frequently that women have a higher uh, pain tolerance than men. From what you've studied, is this true? Uh, that's sort of up for grabs. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think in many cases it is and some it isn't. But yeah, I mean, the, the laboratory tests of pain are, are somewhat different from the clinical experiences of pain. But yeah, many women do have a high tolerance of pain. I mean, the joke is that if men had to go through childbirth, the race would die out because <laughs> they wouldn't be able to stand the pain. Um, that's not really true. Women, women can <laughs> withstand childbirth, luckily for human beings. Thankfully, yes. Well, a quote that I highlighted in your book, you said, women are both more likely to get painful conditions that can afflict both sexes and to report greater pain than men with the same condition. And this was according to studies that you cited in your book. Um, I've noticed a lot that uh, fibromyalgia seems to affect mainly women. And you mentioned this as well, I believe, in your book. Do we know why? I think we don't know why. Um, it's it's a complicated uh, problem, and um, I think we don't really have a good understanding. It's one of those things like chronic fatigue syndrome mm-hmm. um, that are really not clearly understood sort of scientifically. They seem to be very complex. I mean, certainly, as you mentioned before, hormones are a big deal. Overall, to vastly oversimplify, testosterone, which is, you know, found in greater prevalence in men, um, seems to protect against pain where estrogen seems to enhance pain, Mm -hmm. except not all the time. Um, Estrogen is a much more complex actor, and it goes up and down over a woman's menstrual cycle, and it goes up and down over the life cycle, you know, before menopause and after. And the results are very confusing to the point that many doctors or pain researchers now think it's not the absolute level of estrogen that's important, but but the fluctuations that tend to make things worse for women. I mean, migraines, for instance, are a much bigger problem for women than for men, although men get them too. Um, and the migraines tend to be tied to a woman's menstrual cycle. And, you know, what do you do about that? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really a problem. And so, so people that do get migraines consistently, so you're saying that depending on where a woman is in her cycle, the migraine could be more intense, more intense, feel more intense. intense. Yeah. And, and, you know, it it tends to peak around uh, at various points in the cycle and then, then ebb away and then peak again. Um, And it's, it's a real problem for many, many women. I mean, these migraines can be really life destroying. I mean, there's a lot of good research happening and uh, rethinking of what, causes migraines. I mean, it's, it's not the simple picture we used to think of as blood vessels dilating too much. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's a major problem for a lot of people. And again, that tends to, there's a big genetic component as well. Yes. Um, 
I, I read about that in your book. Yeah. I, and you covered that very well in your book. Oh, thank you. But just to tell people, um, yeah, I have a whole chapter on the genetics of pain, which I found very comforting because, and this is true in rats and other animals, um, that about 40 to 50% of your susceptibility to chronic pain seems to be genetically determined, which is you know, sort of bad news if you have those genes. But on the other hand, you can stop blaming yourself. I mean, people mm -hmm. often blame themselves for having pain, and they're often not believed, which feeds into the whole, you know, blaming yourself um, situation. But really, there's a huge genetic component, and that kind of takes the sting out of the self-blaming, I think. It does. And you talk a lot about this, which I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I found it very fascinating to read about the history of pain and where doctors have come, you know, how far they've come as far as perceiving, you know, who feels pain and how intensely, especially the stories about the children, the story about the baby who was operated on with, instead of um, an anesthesia, he was giving a paralysis medication so that he would lie still. Right. Right. I mean, it's just, and not only that, when his mother complained, they dissed her as a hysterical woman and a, a what do they call her? A difficult patient or a difficult secondary patient or something. It was just appalling. It was. And the belief used to be that babies didn't feel pain, and that's just absolutely not true. The thought um, of operating on a baby without pain medication is it's almost unbelievable. It's torture. Um, and I mean, even for simple things like circumcisions, now they, there are ointments and things that they can give to kids uh, to ease the procedure. Um, even when they, you know, they do a needle stick in the baby's heel to, to get a little blood. Mm -hmm. That is, I heard one nurse describe that for an adult, that would be like sticking a, you know, a switchblade knife into your heel. I mean, it's not nothing to a baby. Right. Well, what I can't understand is, and I know you kind of briefly touched on this, is that doctors had to believe this um, so that they could get through all of this. So they had to convince themselves it was true. But how can you not understand that a baby feels pain when you poke it with a needle? It cries. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's just hard to wrap your head around that. Yes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Well, um, and talking about pain and it being in your head, I did want to briefly touch on the fact that a lot of people, and you mentioned this when um, in the intro, that people with chronic pain are frequently told that it's in their head. Uh, is it a possibility that these could be psychosomatic symptoms? You know, the pain, um, I believe it does have a source, usually even when we experience what can be clinically called psychosomatic pain. I still believe that has a source. There's something that causes a psychosomatic pain, even if the pain originates from something mental. It's still a health condition. Does that make sense? Um, there's certainly emotional pain. And mm -hmm. you know, well, if you've ever been broken up with by somebody or heartbreak, <laughs> yeah, we all know that emotional pain is real. And to some extent, the same areas of the brain light up with emotional pain as with physical pain. Um, but um, the interesting 
and sort of depressing thing about chronic pain, which is what my book is all about, not really, you know, a broken arm that's going to heal in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, with chronic pain, it can often start out as, you know, kind of simple acute pain, and then the nervous system revs up. It changes over time, kind of with a little feedback loop. It's sort of like, like learning the piano or learning to speak French. The nervous system gets better and better and better at it, and what it gets better at is transmitting pain signals to the brain to the point that the chronic pain, and this is a really important point, chronic pain becomes a disease in its own right, not just a symptom of something else. And once the nervous system gets cranked up this way, the original source may disappear you know, you, or not even be able to be found. It becomes uh, sort of like a runaway train wow. on its own thing. So it's like it's a disease of the nervous system. It's a real disease, although doctors usually look for, like you said, what, what is the cause? But once it becomes chronic, it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing. So you're um, saying that once we, uh, the more we feel pain, on a chronic level, the more we are able to feel pain. Yes, it's sort of like we get good at it, except right. it's a bad thing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah uh, so we've honed the practice of feeling so bad. It. Our nerve, it's a learning thing for the nervous system, you can think of it that way. And so if we can learn it, is it possible that we can unlearn it? Yeah, yes, I think that's true to some extent. I mean, it's, it's a tough, pain, chronic pain is a really tough monster. Um, there are a lot of things you can do to lessen it, and I don't know if you want to go into all those things. You know. And certainly the drugs, we, we, that's sort of almost a separate topic. Mm -hmm. um, but there are things to do, and there's a wonderful group called the American Chronic Pain Association, and you can just look them up on the web, and they're very helpful to a lot of people. Um, you, you can do things, you, if your pain is at a 10 on the famous zero to 10 scale, um, with meditation and acupuncture, and in some cases, massage, and various kind of mind tricks, if you will, um, you can re you're not going to make it go away, but you can learn to some extent to separate your emotional response to the pain from the sensory part of the pain. So you may be able to say, oh, wow, my pain is, is really intense, but I'm not, you know, I'm not really that involved with it emotionally. And, you know, maybe that can knock it down from a 10 to a nine and a half or a nine. And then if you add acupuncture, maybe you can knock it down another half a point uh, or massage or distraction works very well. Mm -hmm. People often find while they're working, they're not as aware of the pain. Um, so, you know, it's not a slam dunk. You can't, you can't use these things normally to totally get rid of it, but you can help make the suffering less, even if the sensory information is the same. I agree. Uh, I mean, you talk about uh, various ways to deal with pain in your book. Some of the things that you just now mentioned also, you mentioned hypnosis, which I have actually used before. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, with my fifth childbirth, I practiced um, hypnosis on like self hypnosis to lessen the pain. And I actually gave birth to a 12 pound baby at home. Wow. Thankful that I practiced because it was by far the most traumatic uh, childbirth experience that I had in all six of my um, pregnancies. But yes, I do believe that hypnosis can alter our perception of pain. Um, and you know, when used properly, I think it can be something very beneficial, but you talk about biofeedback as well. How exactly can you explain a little bit about how biofeedback works? 
Well, yeah, they do this with brain scans in an experimental condition. And if pe people are actually looking um, at a computer screen that shows their actual brain in real time, this is like in a laboratory experiment, and then the researchers puncture their arm with a needle or a little heat thing or something. And they can learn to sort of looking at their screen, see the areas of their brains lighting up and sort of tell themselves whatever, like you told yourself in hypnosis, oh, there's my pain. I'm not going to get involved with it, but I can see it lighting up. Sort of like calmly just noticing it as opposed to saying, holy shit, you know, yeah. my brain is on fire. Um, and they can actually see the area getting less lit up. Um, you know, so, and you can use biofeedback for a number of things. Like if you, if you have one of those, um, blood pressure cuffs that you can get at the drugstore and you, you know, put it on your arm, you take your blood pressure. And then if you sort of do a little relaxation, like some breathing or some hypnosis and take your blood pressure again, um, sort of consciously relaxing your body, it'll probably be lower the next time. On the other hand, if it's high and you freak out, oh God, I'm going to have a stroke, the next time it'll be even higher. So, you know, you can sort of train yourself uh, to have a calmer reaction physically, physiologically to what's going on basically in your body. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I have experienced it myself. And I think partly from, you know, learning some self hypnosis has helped also just learning some of these techniques. Um, but I have watched it. I love being my own guinea pig. So I have like a pulse monitor. You can check your pulse and we know that your pulse rate speeds up when you're super stressed or you're having anxiety. And I have watched it, you know, the clip on that you can put on your finger. Right. Be seriously worked up about something and watch that number and just tell myself, you know, and then take some of those calming breaths and just feel your muscles relax. So, you know, you can learn some of these, I guess it's cognitive behavior. Um, that you Cognitive behavior therapy is a little bit different. Explain um, that to us. Um, cognitive behavior therapy, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, um, you learn to, it's, it's all sort of overlaps a bit, but um, with that, you sort of, monitor your thoughts like if you you know you see your pulse oximeter going up and, it, and then you're scared uh, yeah. okay it's just it's it's going up um, I'm not gonna die um, you know you kind of think okay that's a that's an exaggerated thought yes it's up a little bit um, but um, you know I'm not gonna die not necessarily fatal and you sort of you look at your thoughts as a and because your thoughts can generate a lot of the feelings um, you try to say, is that not really realistic? Or your thought might be, you know, I'm a loser. Um, and if you change that thought to, well, I screwed up this time, but a lot of times I don't, and I'm a pretty good person overall, um, you know, you can sort of catch your, your really negative thoughts in mid-thought kind of, and that can really help a lot, especially with um, catastrophizing, which is one of the things um, in my book that I talk about. Uh, people in pain, understandably, um, and I had this myself when my neck was really bad. You know, like, oh, I'm dying. The pain is never going to stop. You know, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. There's no end in sight. And, um, you know, sometimes that's sort of true. I mean, if you have really bad chronic pain, it may be a lifelong condition, but it may not be at the same sort of peak intensity all the time. So if you like, if you keep a pain diary and keep track of when it goes up and when it goes down, then you can sort of tell yourself, 
hmm, there seems to be a circadian rhythm here, or I always get upset when I talk to my mother on the phone or whatever. I uh, say, okay, so it's not exactly the same all the time. It is a little bit more manageable than I thought, or when I do these things or get into this position, it hurts more, and this position, it hurts less. You can kind of tease it apart a little bit and get a little bit more emotional control over it. And it's not easy. I mean, chronic pain is not, it's not an easy thing to deal with. Um, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Well, back to the um, talking about uh, cognitive behavior and kind of the hypnosis thing, meditation, it does all overlap. And one of the things that I feel like people can learn to do some of these techniques and it does make a significant difference and not necessarily um, just with pain, but with other things. For example, when I do see that um, pulse monitor, like the numbers like going ah, kind of high, I look at it and I'm like, I can control this. That's my thought in my head. I can control this. I just need to calm down, take a deep breath, relax my muscles. And so it is kind of um, a thought and um, then things that I do. So, and I feel like the same can be applied with pain. Um, I'm not saying that you can completely eliminate pain, but we definitely can significantly reduce it using some of these techniques. Um, one, one way to think of it is you, the pain is, is a sensory and emotional experience. Mm -hmm. um, but the more you can separate out the emotional part um, and separate the sensory from the emotional, you can acknowledge the sensory and try not to get as wrapped up in the emotions. Right. That sort of, that's the thing that's, apparently the reason why meditation helps so much you're just sitting there kind of noting this is really bad uh, but i'm just gonna i'm just noticing it i'm not gonna try to fix it i'm not gonna try to make analyze it, okay. it i'm not gonna try to analyze it um i'm just noting it and that that helps a lot but it's not a slam dunk you know right um, and I, that's important to note that it's not a slam dunk because people often think Oh, now I'm a bad meditator. I deserve this pain. You know, people do a whole lot of trips on them. We all do. Um, right. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's where that, I can never say the word, but when you do the catastrophic thinking, um, you actually make the pain worse when you yeah. start down that road. Yes. So if you catch yourself doing that, and come up with techniques of how to redirect your mind and the thinking and the emotional side of it, then it, it helps. Yes, it does. It definitely does. So let's move on to pain relievers. Well, this okay. is a, a huge uh, topic that um, we could talk about for hours, but we'll just try yeah. to touch on it briefly. Um, opioids. Yes. Um, Opioids have gotten a very bad rap, and I just, I, in preparation for today, I looked, uh, I contacted uh, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, to get their latest drug overdose uh, statistics. Um, and first of all, it's important to recognize that when the CDC or doctors talk about drug overdoses, they're talking about everything, including cocaine and methamphetamine and stuff like that. So people always think the drugs mean um, opioids and it's things in addition to opioids. In the last uh, year that we have data for, which is 2017, there were about 70,000 um, drug-related drug overdose deaths. 
but only only uh, two thirds of those were from um, opioids. And with among the opioid deaths, not all of them are from misusing prescription opioids. Most of them are from illicit fentanyl, which comes into the country from various places, including China. Um, and so we've so we've sort of got this narrative going that doctors are overprescribing opioids, which is true. But the other half is doctors are also under-prescribing opioids when they, patients really do need them. And it's hard for doctors to figure out who really needs them and who's just trying to scam them for drugs. Um, it, the, the, you know, we've, we think it's all prescription opioids, and they are a problem when they're overused. But the real situation is people who are drug abusers who take prescription opioids from other people, they steal them or they get them from family and friends and they use them to get high, not to control pain. So it's a real mishmash in the public mind. The narrative is, um, is very confusing. And the result of that is that legitimate pain patients who generally, by and large, take them opioids responsibly and, and if anything, tend to underdose themselves, get deprived of drugs that can really be life-saving for them. Um, while people who are abusing the drugs, uh, they're the ones who are more likely to overdose because often they mix the opioids with cocaine or methamphetamine or other drugs. So it's like a polypharmacy, they call it, multiple drug situation. And, but in the public mind, it's all just bad doctors and, and, and bad pain patients. Um, and it's, it's actually much more complicated than that. It is very complicated. I, a while back, um, interviewed a, a pharmacist who wrote a children's book about the opioid epidemic. And she got all kinds of um, hate comments from people who really do need Right, um, opioid prescriptions and have a hard time getting them because of these things. So it's, it's really hard. The topic is very touchy and I, I can see both sides of the fence, but yeah, we yeah. definitely need uh, people to be educated about proper use of opioids. And we also need people who are in pain to have access to these. And speaking of education, um, that is a huge problem, not for the general population, but a major problem with pain in this country is that doctors learn almost nothing about pain in medical school. There was a big study in 2011 from Johns Hopkins that surveyed, I think, over 100 medical schools. And the median amount of time doctors learned in four years of school were learning about pain was nine hours. And it's that's pain is the main reason people go to doctors right. it's the main reason for disability and doctors don't learn about pain and what they learn is you know don't prescribe opioids but um you know pain is a complex thing there's four or five different types of pain which all require different treatment um and so the met the people who are supposed to be helping us uh know basically much less than they should about pain scientists who study pain know a lot um but that isn't getting translated into medical school curricula that is so unfortunate that the people who should know the most about pain know so little that's right. And I've had, um, in my talk that I give uh, about pain, I have quotes from a number of doctors who themselves ended up with pain, and they were stunned to find out. They went to, for, to other doctors for help, and they said, yeah, these doctors don't know anything. Um, they don't know how to treat pain. And it is a complex thing, but it could be taught better in medical schools. Definitely. Um, 
And that's a really big underlying problem is the lack of education. And the I other big underlying problem is that the National Institutes of Health, the government, um, they don't fund pain research as much as they should. It's, they, it's a very tiny percent, one or two percent of the big NIH budget. And it tends to be scattered among the different institutes, like the Cancer Institute or the Heart Institute. Um, you know, and, and pain is pervasive through all of medicine, and it should really have its own institute because it's, it's a major health problem. And yet it's kind of scattered around in bits and pieces in these other departments and these other institutes. So it never really gets the focus in terms of the research that it should. And yet it's a driver for people going to doctors. And it, it probably will continue to be. Well, yeah. hopefully with people like you um, educating us with books like A Nation in Pain, hopefully we can start getting some of that funding for more research so that doctors can be educated. Yes. Yeah, in fact, one interesting thing I stumbled upon in the book was that veterinary students get more education about pain in veterinary school than med students. Wow. So maybe we should all go to the vet for our pain. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, vets, I mean, hey, people care about their animals. Yeah, yeah. A lot they of care about do. their animals being in pain, our fur baby. Yeah. Um, well, let's briefly touch on some of the other pain relievers. Okay. Um, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, uh, like Aleve or ibuprofen, um, they work pretty well, but people can get a lot of uh, gastrointestinal problems and even cardiac problems from that. Um, and, you know, drugs like aspirin can cause bleeding, gastrointestinal bleeding, make people anemic. Um, they're not trivial. Tylenol is... Um, a somewhat effective pain reliever, but it can, people end up with a lot of liver disease. And if you take Tylenol, you should absolutely not drink alcohol. That's a very bad combination for the liver. Um, so those are the main things. There are topical pain relievers for, you know, that you just spread on your skin. Um, they may help a little bit for minor pain, but for, for sort of the deeper pain that a lot of people are in chronically, that those wouldn't have much of an effect. Um, that you know it's not there aren't a lot of good things although two things that really do help and i have separate chapters on each of these one is marijuana which is quite effective um and it, it turns out that if you take some preliminary data suggests that if you take marijuana and the opioids you can actually lower your dose of opioids they have a synergistic effect they work together to reduce pain. Uh, and in some cases, marijuana is, um, you know, people find it better than opioids with many fewer side effects. And, you know, it can be quite effective. So I'm very pleased that sort of nationwide, we're allowing marijuana more for medical use and recreational use, because that makes it more available. Um, it's unlike opio opioids are dangerous for overdose because they suppress your breathing. They suppress respiration, so you can die. Um, marijuana does not suppress respiration, so that's one major reason why it's less dangerous than opioids. Um, the other chapter that I have in my book that, that people don't think about, but exercise, uh, is a very powerful way to um, help reduce pain. It's somehow, for some reason that it's not totally clear, it sort of desensitizes the body to pain. So you can kind of ratchet back that runaway train that we talked about. Um, and people don't think usually of exercise as a way to treat pain, but it actually can be a very effective way. 
Right. And I do want to talk a little bit more about exercise, but first I want to back up to um, the biology of marijuana and have you explain to us a little bit about how, you know, we're all born with the ability to make these um, chemicals that are similar to um, marijuana in our um, cannabinoid, the cannabinoid receptors in our endocannabinoid system. Can you... Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, we are all born with these marijuana-like substances called cannabinoids. Like cannabis is the official name for marijuana. We're all born with them. The endo means we make it in our body, and cannabinoid means marijuana-like. So we are all born with with the ability to produce our own marijuana, essentially. And we also are born with the receptors into which these chemicals go. Um, And it's, it's like nature, evolution kind of, evolve this system to uh, help us deal with pain. Um, and it works, obviously not perfectly, but uh, the, the biology that we're born set up to help deal with pain. Interestingly, not every, you know, there's a genetic variation. Uh, some people are born with a better endocannabinoid system than others. Um, right, and what can happen when people are deficient? And um, so feel more pain. Right. So these people genetically will feel more pain, be more susceptible to pain. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned before, there's a lot of genetic variation in how sensitive or susceptible somebody is to, to chronic pain. Um, so biology is really interesting. You know, we're, we're, we're set up to, to be able to deal with some pain just naturally. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. And then I also wanted to touch on acupuncture because I know you um, used an acupuncturist, right? I'm a fan, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although for my neck, I have to say, uh, I ended up ripping out the needles over my neck. My, I had what they call in this runaway pain thing called allodynia, which just means that the slightest touch feels like a blowtorch. Uh, you, you become so hypersensitive to pain that very, very minor touch feels biologically like a massive attack. And the needles did hurt me in that, um, in that moment, in that period of my chronic pain. Before and since, um, I've found acupuncture very helpful. Um, and many people find it helpful for childbirth, for um, the pain and nausea of chemotherapy. There's a lot of good data on acupuncture and why it works. Even um, quitting smoking, weight loss. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, to me, it has very good emotional benefits too. I mean, I, my previous husband died and while I was in the grieving process, I did a lot of acupuncture and it just helped my whole body relax and kind of de-stress from the, the grieving process. It really helped me through that. And it helps a lot of people with a lot of different kinds of pain. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah. It actually, I have used acupuncture for adrenal fatigue and- Adrenal fatigue. Okay. Yes. And it and it actually did help. I mean, it takes more than it's not a magic bullet. You can't just go in and have it done once and then woo, you're all better. But yeah, over time it definitely does help. I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about your the boot camp that you went to. Does that kind of line up with exercise? Yes, it does okay. kind of line up with exercise. Okay. Yes, I, they call it boot camp. It was um, at New England Baptist Hospital, which is a famous hospital in Boston. And basically, they have you do exercises that you think would be exactly wrong and make your pain worse. Um, but basically, it's sort of desensitizing. I mean, you're doing push-ups, you're lifting heavy things wrong, you're 
Uh, they had me doing various neck exercises, and it works. It, and there were people in much worse shape than I was who were doing these things, and uh, it got better. They're, and they're very, um, they're, they're not pushing drugs. In fact, they had sort of frown on the drugs, and um, it was amazing. It was amazing. Wow. Uh, I think I went to a two, two six-week courses, um, and it was, um, it was very effective very effective and encouraging. You know, if you see that you're doing something that's making your own pain better, it really is kind of empowering and think, okay, maybe I can beat this thing. Yeah. Get it better. I um, had to be a little fearful in the beginning. Oh yeah. You want me to do what? <laughs> you know? Are you crazy? Crazy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. So you said over a period, what was it like? So 12 weeks about it was a long time. I think it was a long time as yeah, 12 weeks, probably. I think most of the programs are six weeks, but mm -hmm. they let me do it again. Um, and it was great. Um, so I was able to get back to my normal, my normal life. Um, and now you're back to swimming and everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. But before, you know, when the pain was at its worst, you know, what I found, well, this was neck pain. Um, you know, trying to go to sleep or lie down in bed, I'd be sitting on the bed. And then there's that moment when you're kind of tipping to lie down and you need your neck to keep your head from flopping. And it was just, there was no way to make that not hurt. You know, just, it, it can be excruciating. Um, and yet it's sort of invisible. I didn't look sick. You know, people, I would cross the street kind of gingerly and I feel like I should be waving a red flag saying, you know, don't hit me. I can't go any faster, you know, because pain is sort of invisible to the outside world. And yet, um, you know, you want the outside world to be protective of you. Um, right. That's another layer of complication to yeah. chronic pain is that it is an invisible illness. That's right. And unfortunately there's nothing you can do about it. You can't, I mean, I guess you could wear a t-shirt, but you know, you wear, I thought about wearing a neck collar just as a sign to oh, other right. people, you know, <laughs> Hey, this hurts. This hurts. Exactly. Right. And so that, that brings me to a question I wanted to ask you and, and you cover this and kind of like the way you wrap up your book, how do we move on when we are dealing with chronic pain? And we're really not sure how long is this going to last? Is this going to be forever? Is this going to be my life until the end? How do we move on? Well, I think there's sort of the personal and then there's the political. I mean, personally, you can do all the things that I talk about in the book, you know, acupuncture, massage, the opioids if you need them. By all means, check out the chronic pain support groups. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a wonderful one that I went to in Boston uh, for research on the book. And it just helps so much to talk to other people who believe your pain right. and they have all different kinds of pain. And there's a real acceptance and people trade information about what doctors are sympathetic, what doctors are not. I mean, those can be very useful. On the political side, I kept wishing that pain patients would do what people with AIDS have done and people with breast cancer, you know, get out on the street and march. Saying, you know, we are not lying. We are not faking it. Our pain is real. We're not abusing opioids um, because pain patients have really, really suffered um, and op people with opioid addictions are also suffering. That is a real disease, and it destroys not only the lives of the addict, but their families, too. That's a real disease, but so is pain. And, um, you know, it, it, I'm a journalist, and, and most people who aren't journalists find this hard to believe. But if you're sitting in a newsroom and you're getting two or three calls about a story on opioids from 
calls from people with pain saying, hey, you left out our half of the story. You know, I need these drugs. Um, don't deprive me just because other people are abusing them. I mean, that's basically the message. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, that's, that's sort of a nuanced message, and the press doesn't really do nuance very well. <laughs> but um, pay, if pain patients could find their own voice, it would be really helpful because their voice has gotten lost. Yes, and, and validation definitely does a lot for your mental um, health when it comes to these inv invisible illnesses like chronic pain. You know, when yes. someone validates your pain, I don't know what it is about it, but it definitely takes some of the pressure off. It does. It definitely does. It, yeah. You know, that's true. That's why these groups, you know, are so helpful to people. Because even your own spouse, I, I interviewed one guy whose wife didn't believe him when he was having these excruciating headaches. And he went to emergency room after emergency room, and they all thought he was drug-seeking. Drug he wound up in the psychiatric ward in a Narcotics Anonymous group, and they were all talking about how they would steal to get drugs. And he was I just I don't, I don't want to get high. I just want my pain to go away. He finally went to an emergency room where they did work him up, where they hadn't before. And uh, he had two brain aneurysms, one of which was operated on that night. So people with pain get, get dismissed, even in hospitals. Um, and, you know, it's, you know it, it's, it's, a real, it's a disease in its own right. And it deserves the respect and treatment and funding that other diseases get. Yes, and, I... End of sermon. <laughs> oh, no, I agree. And I think that um, this is a very important book that you wrote, and it helped me to understand pain so much better and just the background of pain. There's so much more. I didn't know there was four different types of pain. There's so much information in this book. So if, if you're listening and you are someone who experiences chronic pain or if you have a friend or family member that you love who experiences chronic pain, I highly recommend getting Judy's book, A Nation in Pain. It, it will be eye-opening for you, um, for sure. Is there anything else that you think we should touch on before we wrap up, Judy? No, just what I said that, you know, if you're in pain, you know, believe yourself. Don't don't mess with yourself telling you you're making it all up and take it seriously and keep going. People have to go to multiple doctors many times before they find one who gets it. Um, so don't give up. That would be right. one. Don't give up. Good advice. And you don't have to wait to get a diagnosis to start implementing some of these things yes. that you suggest for relieving pain, especially things like massage and meditation, these things that you can do on your own. Um, I mean, you can't get your own prescription, but you definitely don't have to wait for a diagnosis to get a chiropractic adjustment or um, acupuncture. That's right. That's right. So take your pain in your own hands and do what you can. Yes. Good advice. <laughs> Thank you so much, Judy. I always enjoy talking to you. I enjoy talking to you too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.